Welcome to the Page Talks podcast, where we discuss issues critical to the work of professional educators and public education. The Professional Association of Georgia Educators serves 95,000 educators as the state's largest membership association and leading advocate for educators, public education, and a valuable resource for member needs with legal representation, legislative services, and professional learning. I'm Craig Harper, Executive Director for PAGE and the host of the PAGE Talks podcast. This episode is all about what happened under the Gold Dome during the 2021 session of the Georgia General Assembly. You can access a written wrap-up report of the session, as well as many other highlights and analyses on the legislative webpage at www.pageinc.org. I'm glad to be joined by Margaret Ciccarelli, our Director of Legislative Services. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having us. And Josh Stevens, a Legislative Affairs Specialist. Morning, Craig. Thanks for having me. And Claire Suggs, our Senior Policy Analyst. Hi, I'm so glad to be with you all today. All right, there's a lot to cover, so we're going to jump right into it. Margaret, this was an unusual session. Last session, last year, the session was interrupted by the COVID pandemic, and they ended up taking a pause and then coming back and finishing up much later than normal. This year, they did have an entire session, but it was under some pretty tight restrictions. So talk to us just a little bit what the COVID-related challenges were this year. The situation under the gold dome was changed, but we were committed to getting the work done, very similar to what educators and students are experiencing in schools. So it looked different, but we operated differently and got through it. It meant fewer people at the Capitol, more electronic meetings, no working the ropes, notably, which uh, means that we could not page legislators uh, on the House and Senate floor. Instead, those areas were kind of blocked off. There was mandatory testing twice a week of House and Senate members, much mask wearing, um, with a few exceptions, and heightened security around the Capitol including robust law enforcement presence and the ongoing installation of a fence around the Capitol property. All right. So we were able to participate, though, in virtual format. So all of you were able to listen in and report on all of the activity that was going on at the at the Gold Dome. Yes, we absolutely were, Craig. I was on site for most days. And because of the silver lining of uh, the pandemic was that the long shift toward more virtual participation and transparency for real-time broadcast of legislative meetings quickly escalated this year. So we had for PAGE, representing PAGE and Georgia educators, both on-site presence and a robust virtual presence um, with staff, PAGE staff monitoring and participating in meetings virtually. All right, so let's jump into some of the action that happened uh, with this legislative session. And it was it was a mixed bag. There were some really positive things that were supportive of education and some other things that we wish hadn't gone the way they had. But one of the positive things that came out of the uh, legislation that was passed in the legislature this year was that Governor Brian Kemp developed Senate Bill 88, which was referred to as the Teacher Pipeline Bill. Tell us a little bit about what that bill does for educators. Kemp's bill had several components and was supported by PAGE and several other statewide education groups. It aims to increase the number of teachers in the Georgia pipeline by making it easier for U.S. military veterans to become certified teachers in Georgia. It also enhances collaboration with HBCUs, historically Black colleges and universities, to make sure that we have teachers of color serving Georgia students. And it was part of a broader teacher pipeline package that also included a $1,000 pay supplement that will be paid out one time to most Georgia educators, including certified teachers, building level leaders, and also 
other members of the education team, including custodians, school nutrition workers, and school bus drivers, and some other certified staff. That one-time $1,000 pay supplement was funded by use of federal pandemic-related dollars. So it did not move through the state legislature, but it's an important piece that is moving through the State Board of Education and will be paid out to educators by the end of the fiscal year, which ends on the last day of June. So it's an important piece for educators to be aware of. Well, any effort that we can make toward increasing the number of teachers that are being prepared and working in our classrooms is is welcome. And so we've appreciated that effort by Governor Kemp and the support of the legislature in making this happen. And certainly the educator supplement that has been um, developed and is being implemented this spring is is a welcome uh, recognition of the work that educators across all employees has been an important acknowledgement of their work. So were there any other bills related to teacher recruitment and retention that came through? It was a theme under the Gold Dome this session, which isn't surprising considering the challenges faced by educators and students in schools across the state since the pandemic began. But another piece that educators will want to be aware of is House Bill 32 by Representative Dave Belton, a former local school board member representing his area and now a member of the House Education Committee. His legislation provides a $3,000 tax credit for educators who are teaching in some schools in Georgia, including those schools scoring on the lowest on Georgia's CCRPI accountability at index and teachers in very rural schools. So the State Department of Education will annually develop the school eligibility list, but this is considered an important tool to help promote teaching in these sometimes hard-to-staff schools. All right, Josh, uh, House Bill 385 would allow some retired educators to return to work full-time while also collecting retirement benefits. Of course, this bill wasn't fully approved this year since it's a retirement bill and it has a fiscal impact. Can you explain the unique process that retirement bills must follow? Sure, Craig. First, uh, a little bit more on House Bill 385. Uh, the bill would allow retired educators to return to work full-time after a 12-month waiting period following their retirement. And at the same time, they'd still be able to uh, draw their full TRS benefit. Employment's going to be restricted to high-needs areas that's going to be determined by Georgia's RESAs. And to answer your question, uh, fiscal retirement bills in the, in the legislature have to move through a two-year process. So what they did this year was approve it for a fiscal analysis, which will be done off-session. And then once that fiscal analysis is complete, it will come back next year. And the legislature will be able to consider it throughout the entire legislative process. If the bill passes next year, it will go into effect for uh, July 2022. However, because of that one-year waiting period, the earliest anyone's going to be able to actually use this benefit is going to be July 2023. And do they use that process just because there could be significant impact on the on the budget by implementing these new laws? It's not just impact on the state budget, but also impact on retirement plans themselves. If a retirement bill has an impact on one of the state largest state pension plans like TRS or the employee's retirement system, that needs to be carefully considered before any policy that will impact the long-term financial stability of those important pension plans goes into effect. Okay. Thank you for, for clarifying that. And Claire, there's been a good bit of interest this year in legislation that expands parental leave for, I believe it was state employees, but that includes educators. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what moved through the legislature this year? 
Sure. You're referring to House Bill 146, and it is a bill that, for the first time, provides three weeks of paid parental leave for state employees, as you said, as well as school district employees after the birth of a child or the adoption of a, of a child, or um, if a child in foster care comes to join a family. So this is wonderful news, but there are a couple of caveats that educators should be aware of. First, you need to work for the employer, for the school district, for at least six months before you're eligible for the paid parental leave. Second, the bill requires each employer to set up their own kind of rules for actually implementing this new policy. So there could be variation across districts. In fact, I think it's probably likely that districts will approach this in somewhat different ways. And finally, the bill doesn't actually provide any additional funding for districts to help them cover what might be, you know, kind of additional costs for substitute educators or just other costs that they may incur. If members have questions about it, they should reach out to their their HR departments. Um, And of course, if they run into problems, they can certainly reach out to the PAGE legal team to help them navigate that. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting policy to see how it's implemented across districts, especially because there will be some variability. I I would imagine many districts are going to have to try to coordinate how they would work that in comparison to FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act, and other leave policies. So uh, we'll continue to follow this, of course, as this is implemented around the state and and as people adopt policies. And as Claire, you've said, people ever have questions about what's going on and they don't feel like they're getting all all the information that they need, they should definitely call the Page Legal staff and let us help you provide some guidance on those issues. Margaret, there were several charter school bills that came through the legislature. What's their main impact and what was their focus? Some of those bills, which were successful and are are on the currently on the governor's desk, will increase funding for charter schools. But one of the things that's important for our members to understand is that one of the bills allows teachers at charter schools to join the state health benefit plan and participate in state health insurance. So they, it will have a positive impact on uh, Georgia educators. So just another topic that's gotten a lot of attention for several years is allowing homeschool students to participate in extracurricular activities in public schools. And Senate Bill 42 creates a pathway for these homeschool students to do that. Can you tell us more about that bill and how it's going to be implemented? Sure, Craig. Uh, this bill is, is a very interesting story. It kind of shows the complexity of the legislative session um, as it moves forward, actually, in, in several ways. So originally, Senate Bill 42 started as a bill that would have untethered the student discipline data from school co- climate ratings. Throughout the legislative process, the committee process, that actually turned into a bill that not did not remove student discipline data from school climate ratings, but instead it required districts to post uh, student discipline data on their website. So it really didn't accomplish what it started out to. On top of that, language from Senate Bill 51 by Senator Bruce Thompson, who has been the, the main driver of allowing homeschool students to participate in extracurricular activities, was added to Senate Bill 42 after crossover day, which is a, a method that's used pretty commonly at the le- during legislative session to, to put bills that were not successful onto other bills. What Senate Bill 42 does now in in regards to homeschool students is it would allow homeschool students the opportunity to participate in extracurricular activities at a public school, given that the student enrolls in either a virtual dual enrollment or in-person course at that school. 
uh, the student has to enroll with, uh, in the 30 days prior to the start of the semester in which the activity begins in order to be able to participate in that activity. This bill has been introduced several years now, um, and this, this requirement to participate in a class was what helped kind of drive it over the finish line this year with the acceptance of GHSA and, uh, and some other groups. Margaret, there were several bills aimed at either expanding Georgia's current voucher programs or creating a new one this session. Uh, Were legislators successful in any of the efforts to expand private school voucher programs? There were several voucher bills that moved at least partway through the General Assembly, and Claire and Josh can touch on two of them. I'll talk about the one that was successful. Senate Bill 47 crossed the finish line and is currently awaiting Governor Kemp's signature. The bill expands Georgia's special needs voucher, which currently includes students with IEPs, and now it will encompass students with 504 plans and at least one of about 20 conditions, including ADHD, autism, dyslexia, and a number of serious medical conditions like childhood cancer and cerebral palsy. Notably, while a student's eligibility for the private school voucher is triggered by their special needs status, they lose a legal right to educational accommodation to meet those special needs once they accept the voucher. And most educators are very familiar with the difference between IEP and a, and a 504 plan, but one, one is a much more formal process that goes through the IDEA and, and special education rules. And then 504 can be for pretty simple, t- very temporary disability situations and is a much lower bar to special services. So this really does expand the number of students who are going to be eligible to take advantage of this. It does. And they will be eligible for that voucher until they graduate from high school, which was one of our concerns about the legislation that unfortunately was not addressed in the final version of the bill. As you have already pointed out, Craig, the difference between a 504 and an IEP is great, but the bill does not require continued evaluation of these students once they initially qualify, and that's really one of the, the flaws of this program. We don't know whether or not the, the 504 would still be appropriate after a year or two using the voucher or even if the student would continue to qualify for the IEP. Most importantly, we don't have a way to track because that evaluation is, is not done after the fact, if students using the voucher are actually academically successful under its use. Yeah, one of the major, major issues that we've had with any of these voucher efforts has been that there's just not the same kind of accountability or transparency that's required of those voucher programs as as public schools are required to with their funding and, and all the other accountability measures that go into place. And Claire, one of one of the reasons Paige has concerns about voucher legislation is because of the financial impact on public schools and the student services that uh, they provide. Remind us, if you would, the cost of these programs as we understand it. Yeah, this is a really important aspect of private school voucher programs. They have a fiscal impact both at the state level and at the local level. You know, at the state level, they're shifting state dollars from public schools to private ones that, as Margaret has just noted, are simply not held to the same standard of providing services to to students. In the case of the special needs voucher program, that is shifting about $35 million in state funds to private schools annually. And in the tax credit voucher program, that's shifting about $100 million from public schools into private schools. And again, without that clear accountability. At the local level, losing these dollars can be really disruptive. You know, districts can't easily reduce their costs when students leave to take a voucher. So, for example, 
you know, if, if four students are in a school and they choose to leave, they take one of these vouchers and choose to leave, that school can't just easily downsize teacher salaries. You know, they can't easily cut utility bills or scale back their bus program. They still have those costs. You know, this is an issue for districts across the state, but it really hits you know, small districts and rural districts I mean, quite hard. You know, these are districts that tend to rely more heavily on state dollars. So when they lose those dollars, it, it really can have a ripple effect in not good ways. For our listeners who are interested in learning a whole lot more about this, Paige has done a number of reports on financial impact and just the general impact of voucher programs for the state of education in Georgia and how some of these programs have worked in other states and so what we can what we can learn from them and some of those negative financial and other impacts. So if anybody's interested in following up with those reports, they can check out our legislative webpage on our website, www.pageinc.org and find those reports and just a whole host of resources are available to you there. So thank you, Claire, for providing that information. Uh, Josh, there were also some unsuccessful voucher expansion efforts. It was a really tough fight this year with the number of of different proposals that were made and the difficulty of doing the typical kind of advocacy we would. But fortunately, we were able to uh, counter some of the voucher expansion bills that came up. Can you provide us some more information on those bills that didn't make it through the session? Sure. So there were there were two bills that would have expanded the current voucher, or actually one bill that would expand one of the current voucher programs and one bill that would have created an entirely new voucher. Starting with the new voucher, it was HB 60 was kind of the main the main bill that was being pushed as far as uh, vouchers go this year. Um, there was a really tough fight on that bill in order to, to create this third program. What it would do is set up what's known as an education savings account. And what this is, is it would be funded by state money that would have gone to public schools for the student that chooses to use the voucher. Instead, it would go into a, a savings account that the parents would have access to in order to help pay for private school tuition and other types of educational services that could include tutoring and some other things. This bill has been introduced several times in the past few years, and it's been defeated each time, both in the House and the Senate. One notable change on this, this year's uh, ESA voucher program was that it would have also allowed students that are enrolled in school districts that did not provide 100% face-to-face instruction for a semester during the previous school year to participate in the program, which would have really opened this up to a lot of a lot more students than it originally would have. So this bill didn't did not make it past crossover day. That does not mean, however, that the bill can't come back up next year. The way the legislative session works is a two-year legislative session. This is the first year of that session. The bill is still eligible to come back up next year, and it's a good bet that we'll see it again in some form or another. Bill that would have expanded one of the current programs was House Bill 142. It would have expanded the the tax credit voucher programs cap that was mentioned earlier from $100 million to $150 million. Page has several issues with this program. Um, that were also pointed out by a, a report done by the Department of Audits at the state that showed some pretty severe issues with this program, mainly the lack of transparency and accountability measures. And one way that the legislature tried to, to counter this report was another bill, which is House Bill 517, that actually included some much needed efforts to expand the financial transparency of the tax credit voucher program, but it did not provide any additional academic accountability enhancements to show how the students that actually are receiving the voucher are performing in the private schools that they're attending. 
as part of that bill, during the committee process, uh, one legislator tried to extend the sunset on the $100 million cap, which is, is supposed to end, I believe, next year. 517 eventually failed on signing die, so it did not pass. And yet, again, that bill will still be eligible to come up next year. And we anticipate there to be a big push to try to get both the cap expanded and possibly even the sunset expanded. One thing that's important to understand also about efforts to add fiscal transparency um, that are very welcome to Georgia's current tuition tax credit legislation is that they don't increase academic accountability. There is no um, proposed academic accountability on the table. We noted that in reference to the special needs voucher bill and the, the expansion that passed of that, but it's also true for the legislation on the table that will be on the table in 2022 again uh, to expand the tuition tax credit voucher. As you can see, it's a recurring theme. Uh, Claire, legislators really have only one task that they're required to do each year, and that's to develop the state's budget. When the pandemic hit, lawmakers, of course, imposed a 10% cut to nearly every state agency, including education, because they just did not know what was going to happen with revenue. And so that translated to an austerity cut of nearly a billion dollars to public schools. So as we got into this session and there was more information, were legislators able to restore any of this cut? Fortunately, the state's revenue did not decline as much as initially feared, you know, when the pandemic hit last spring. So legislators were able to restore $567 million of that billion-dollar cut, which is wonderful news. We really weren't sure as we went into January what the budget was going to look like, so this was definitely great news. It does, though, leave in place an austerity cut of $382 million. You know, those are funds that our school districts just will not get for the current school year. But the partial restoration is a good thing. And they were able to add back, you know, a portion of some of the funds that were cut in other programs operated by the Georgia Department of Education. So again, there, there were some bright spots in, in the current budget. And then when we look ahead to the fiscal year 22 budget, that's the budget that will be for the for the upcoming school year. You know, it starts in July 1. We'll see then the same austerity cut of around $380 million. Again, definitely better than a billion, but it does leave some financial challenges for districts. Yeah, definitely. Definitely the case there. And the legislature is able to do something uh, during the initial part of a session with what's called a midterm adjustment. Is there a likelihood that if the economy were to continue to improve and revenues are better than they expected, would we expect that there would be perhaps a, a better midterm adjustment than might otherwise happen that would help alleviate some of this in the midst of the year next year? I think that's a kind of a tough question to answer. Um, as we were following the budget process during this current session, Senator Blake Tillery, who is the chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee, he was really cautious in, in talking about the state's revenue projections. He, he, you know, they have been better than we anticipated a year ago, um, which is wonderful news. But he did sound a note of, you know, that there is still kind of continued uncertainty in the months ahead, you know, in part because of federal dollars and, and some of the the actions taken at the federal level. So there is still a question mark about the state's revenue. But to your point, if projections are better, 
um, or not just if projections, but if the actual revenue numbers are better as um, the upcoming fiscal year unfolds, that is certainly a possibility. You know, if they did it this past year, they could do that again next year. We'll certainly hope for that kind of positive news to continue to happen. And we've been relieved that the governor and the legislators have been aware of the need to address some of these shortfalls. And while they haven't been able to go as far as we've advocated for, certainly they have done some to try to bridge that gap and it's been appreciated. And you mentioned federal allocations and and school districts have received over a couple of different acts at the federal level money to address some of the issues especially in response to COVID. Talk to us a little bit about what those have been and how are they being directed, how are districts being directed to use these funds? And and do you think the state will maintain uh, austerity cuts if districts are able to use this money in some way to cover some of those gaps? These federal dollars are really important. And as you noted, they're coming from three different federal COVID relief packages. So districts have already received some of these dollars, dollars from the CARES 1 and the CARES 2 Act, and they will soon begin receiving dollars from the American Rescue Plan Act. And again, those are absolutely critical dollars, and they can use them in a lot of different ways. They can use them to help offset the $300 million cut for the current fiscal year and looking ahead to next year. You know, they can use those dollars the same way. And they can also use them. And in fact, they're intended to be used to help cover the additional costs that districts have faced this year. You know, districts really have kind of incurred significantly higher costs, you know, like around technology or covering more substitute teachers, personal protective equipment, just additional costs just in getting their school doors open this year. And now, of course, they're looking at, you know, how do they support students in making up for the lost learning time? And that's going to have a big price tag, most likely, particularly for our most vulnerable students. So those dollars can be used that way. And they're they're explicitly very flexible. So districts can really think about what is really best for their particular students and their particular families and educators. So that, there's, that's a wonderful resource that districts have. However, it's a temporary resource. The CARES 1 and 2 Act, Uh, Those dollars have to be spent by September of 2023, and the American Rescue Plan Act have to be spent by 2024. So it's a fantastic resource, but it's short-term. So coming back to your question around austerity, it's not a long-term solution to the austerity cut. You know, that's so we're going to have to, in the years ahead, hopefully resolve the austerity cut. And we know districts have been uh, really working hard on making sure that they have good plans to have the most impact for their students. And you also noted with some of that early federal money that it really did help districts overcome the additional expenses for health and safety and, and all the things that needed to happen for students to return to school. Do we have an idea of how many districts were able to actually provide in-person instruction this year and for many of them over the, the course of the full year? Based on the information that the Georgia Department of Education has shared the vast majority of districts have opened for in-person instruction this year. Um, And even those districts that delayed throughout the fall semester, you know, they were still providing virtual instruction. Um, And I believe all of them now are either offering some form of in-person instruction or, you know, are shifting to that. So Claire, how did districts uh, receive their allocations from these federal recovery plans? All of these federal plans, like CARES 1, CARES 2, and the the ARP plans, they're 
all distributed based on the Title I formula. And that means that these federal dollars are really targeting low-income students. So districts that have high proportions of low-income students are going to get more dollars. Um, and again, this makes sense. You know, we, we know that, you know, these are very often students who are already struggling. They were struggling before the pandemic, many of them. And the pandemic has exacerbated a lot of the challenges that these students faced. However, though, that means that districts with small portions of low-income students are going to get a small portion of those dollars. And in fact, in some instances, the, the districts may not be getting enough to actually cover the cut in state funding. It's really going to differ across districts. It doesn't match up exactly with, with the state funding loss. And so districts are going to be in different positions. Some are going to be able to really kind of be expansive in their planning and in the strategies they use to support students and families now. And other districts just won't have all of those resources. If you're a low enrollment district and then you're a district that doesn't have a very high percentage of of low income students that qualify for those federal uh, title dollars, your, your district is not going to get very much of this money. No, and that makes coping with the, the cut in state funding. Those districts could, could face some, some pretty tight times in the next few years with this austerity cut. All right. Well, thanks for clarifying how those, how those allocations take place. Appreciate this great conversation that we've all been able to have today. As we wrap up, um, one of the important things related to any kind of legislative action is advocacy from the people who are most directly affected by whatever is proposed in in the legislature. So Josh, what are some ways that educators can influence and effectively advocate on these issues that are so important to them and, and the students that we serve all across the state? Even now that the session has ended, what are some things that you would suggest people do? We've been constantly reminded by legislators, uh, for for a very long time that one of the best ways to effectively advocate for for education is to just get to know your legislators. Um, Now that they're not busy with session and and trying to pass legislation, it's a good time just to reach out and make a connection. Introduce yourself, let them know what you do at the school, let them know a little bit about yourself and, and request just a meeting with them and just get to know them and offer yourself as a resource on education issues because I think the most effective advocacy is always going to come from professionals, um, people that live the experience every day. And you, you're going to be able to offer a different perspective on things than the legislative staff. We're definitely equipped to handle advocacy for all of the educators on all these issues, but still the most effective form is going to come from a constituent in their district that has experience in the field. So this is the best time to start doing that, especially before elections start gearing up, because that will be that will. It's all, it seems like we just had an election, but we're about to start a new cycle. So, um, catching people before they're busy, and then also we'll have redistricting later this year. That's going to take up a lot of time for legislators. So this is a really good time just to reach out and make a connection. And that relationship is so important because during the session, they are so engrossed in what's happening on a day-to-day basis that it's really hard to make that connection. And if you get to know your legislator outside the session, even if it's not on a specific topic, if they know who you are and they know your heart and your concern and care for the students that you teach and what your situation is, that when you do reach out to them, when it is a busy, hectic time, they're much more likely to want to take that call and listen to what you've got to say on whatever the topic is. So... So it doesn't have to be an issue-specific, and it shouldn't be just an issue-specific relationship. It should be developed over time. Um, Anything as we wrap up? 
It's been a pleasure during this most unusual session to represent Georgia educators and the students that they uh, have served during this uh, unexpected and wild and challenging year. So um, we thank PAGE members and educators across the state for keeping going and your keep goingness is what kept us going at the Capitol. So keep it up and we will too. We look forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you all so much for joining me today to have this conversation and share this information with our members and our listeners. And we'll talk again real soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Page Talks podcast. Our legislative staff of Margaret Ciccarelli, Josh Stevens, and Claire Suggs, as well as many other Page staff, appreciate the opportunity to represent and advocate for Page members, Georgia educators, and public education. I encourage you to become a regular Page Talks listener by subscribing on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms. Learn more about the Professional Association of Georgia Educators on our website at www.pageinc.org. If you're a Georgia educator and aren't already a PAGE member, please consider joining us today. Goodbye until next time.